It's a good day to be in God's house, and I'm excited to begin our new series on the life of Paul. So if you would turn to Acts chapter 9 with me, that's where we're going to start. And the title of our series is How to Change the World. And I called it that because, well, first of all, don't we all want to see the world change for better? I think we do. Now's a good time to see that happen. And Paul, more than probably any other person other than Jesus, changed the world for good. I mean, talk about an influential life. Talk about an epic, transforming life. And that doesn't mean that you and I have to be just as influential or just as impactful, but we are called to do the same kind of work. And you may say, well, wait a second, Jeff. I never really signed on to be an influencer. I don't, I don't really plan to make this big impact on the world. I just want to live my life and be happy. Is there anything wrong with that? No, there's nothing wrong with that. But the irony is, the more you focus on being happy, the less happy you will be. One of the things I learned after a few years of being married is, the more I focused on how can my wife make me happier, the less happy I was. But the more I focused on, well, how can I be the person she needs me to be, the happier I tended to be. And I'm sure the opposite was, I'm sure the the same was true for her. It's an irony, but it's true. You see, God is always at work in the world. That's one of the things we've been talking about since the beginning of this year. What is God doing? What is God's full-time occupation? It's bringing peace to chaos. And when we say peace, it's that word, that Hebrew word shalom. That means when everything is lined back up the way it should be, and there's harmony, and there's, there's justice, and there's peace and righteousness, and everybody prospers. God is working on redeeming this world And the main way he has done that is through Jesus. Jesus and his death on the cross launched a revolution. Uh, The kingdom of God is now among us and people's lives are being changed left and right and coming to shalom, one heart, one family at a time. But God is not doing that work by himself. Let me give you a few verses. Now, this is not the text of the sermon today, but it's just by way of introduction. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, we are God's fellow workers. So God looks at you and me, and he doesn't say, okay, you're in the audience watching me redeem the world. No, you are my teammates. You're in the arena. We are doing the work together. He goes further in 1 Corinthians 12, 27. You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. And many of us have heard this before out of 1 Corinthians 12, that every local church is part of the body of Christ. And so we usually think of it in terms of, oh, isn't that kind of a unique way to look at things? I'm the earlobe, and you're the elbow, and... He's the armpit, obviously. Um, But that's not really the point Paul's making, or God is making through Paul. Think about it this way. Anything you and I do in this world, we do in our body. If you you came to church this morning in your body, I'm assuming there's no disembodied spirits listening to me preach here today. Uh, When you go to eat afterwards, you're going to eat in your body. When you go home and take a nap or watch uh, TV, You're going to be doing that in your body. Tomorrow when you go to work, you're going to take your body with you, right? Everything Jesus does in the world today, he does in his body, which is the church, which is you and me. We're not not audience members, we're participants. God does his work through the local church. And then... We're all familiar with Matthew 5, 13, there at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth. And verse 14, you are the light of the world. In the same way, one little light bulb can change the entire atmosphere of a room. In the same way, a few pinches of salt can change the entire taste of a casserole. 
you and I were created and redeemed to make an impact on our environment, on our community that is out of proportion to our size, our number, or our perceived strength. We may not look like much, but we can change the world. And that all means that if you want to be happy in this world, you can't be happy by chasing happiness. If so, you'll be like the little kid chasing a butterfly. You'll never catch it. You may get it in your hands once in a while and then it'll fly off. But if you focus your life on loving others in the name of Jesus, if you focus your life on worshiping God by serving the people around you in his name, you'll find a joy and a contentment you never knew was possible. God created us for that. Paul was a world changer, and we're created to be world changers too. So we're beginning today with his conversion story. If you grew up in church at all, you've probably heard this story many times. Even if you didn't grow up in church, it's, it's highly likely you've heard some version of this story. And we love conversion stories. I'm a subscriber to Christianity Today, and every time a new issue comes in, the first thing I do is turn to the very back page because the back page is always a testimony of some person who's come to faith in Christ. And I love those stories. Growing up in a Baptist church the way I did, we heard lots of testimonies. Every time there was a revival, it seemed there would be some story of a person whose life had been transformed. Every time the Billy Graham crusade would come on television, some of us are old enough to remember that. He'd always have some person get up and give a testimony. Testimonies of people whose lives had been changed by the gospel would become best-selling books, would become movies, would become uh, celebrity-type people. I can remember there was a guy who was a famous evangelist when I was a teenager, And his whole deal was he had been a high priest in the church of Satan and had done horrible things in the name of worshiping the devil. And then Jesus had come into his heart and changed him. And he'd written a best-selling book and he'd sold all these albums and he'd spoken at every big church across the country. And and I remember there was even a time when Nightline, remember Nightline with Ted Koppel? They had a a, a segment on Satanism and he was a special guest speaker because he was an expert on devil worship. But then... The Christian magazine Cornerstone, which no longer exists, decided to do some investigating. Turns out the guy had made up the whole story. He was never a high priest in the church of Satan. He'd never sacrificed all these things. It was, it was made up because it was juicy, because it sold. In the same way, a lot of us growing up, we would hear stories like that and think, man, my story's pretty boring. I, I don't have any juicy stuff to say. And so either we would kind of embellish our story or we'd say, my story's not worth telling. But neither one of those are true. Your story doesn't need embellishment, and your story is worth telling. Your salvation story is a miracle. Just as miraculous as the raising of the dead or walking on water. And it needs to be told. Your your story of salvation, if you have one, has at least three very important things in common with the story of the Apostle Paul. And we're going to look at those three this morning. And they are, how Jesus changed my life who he used to do it, and what he's been doing since then. So let's look at Paul's story from that framework, starting with how Jesus changed my life. Saul of Tarsus, that was his given name, his birth name. A lot of people have this idea, including a lot of Christians. Well, he was Saul until he got saved, and then he became Paul, but that's not true. Actually, Saul was his name in Hebrew. Whenever he was around his Jewish friends, they called him Saul. For the rest of his life, that's what they called him. He only became Paul when he went into the Gentile territories to preach the gospel. One scholar I read recently said that the name Saul, when you translate it or transliterate it into Latin, sounds like the word for a man with a prissy walk. 
So he went by a different name. Saul was born in Tarsus, a city in modern-day Turkey. He was, a, he was a Jew of Jews. He was a member of the tribe of Benjamin, proud of his heritage. As a young man, moved to Jerusalem so he could study at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most prominent uh, scholars and rabbis of the first century. He became a Pharisee. As a Pharisee, his whole life's goal was to make sure the people of God stayed true to the word of God because when they didn't, guess what happened? They lost their land. They lost their heritage. They lost their home. And so they considered themselves the spiritual policemen of Israel. Paul, if you would have met him as a young man, you would have seen a young man who was intensely zealous for the, for the name and glory of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He would have known every one of the 613 commands in Scripture. He would have been able to quote you chapter and verse, although they didn't have chapters and verses then. He would have been able to quote you verbatim sections out of the Torah. He would have been someone you would have followed around day and night and never seen him commit even one sin. And he was so zealous, in fact, he wanted to be known by his God and by his people as the most zealous of all followers of Yahweh. He hated those who didn't love the Lord. He hated those who profaned his name. And he hated most of all the people who said that Jesus of Nazareth was the true Messiah of Israel. Because he had proof in the scriptures. Deuteronomy said very clearly, cursed is anyone who is hung upon a tree. Jesus had been crucified on a man-made tree in Paul's thinking. And therefore, he could not be the anointed one of God because God would not curse his own anointed and therefore, anybody who said Jesus is the Christ or Christ is risen, well, that was a person who was clearly blaspheming the holy name and needed to be arrested and needed to be persecuted and sent away. Because if enough of that kind of blasphemy spread, spread through Israel, they could lose their country again. And Paul, so zealous was he, this one man on his one-man rampage literally destroyed the Jerusalem church, scattered this growing movement of Jesus to the four winds of the Mediterranean Empire. But even that wasn't enough. He obtained letters from the high priest in Jerusalem that enabled him to go to any synagogue in the Mediterranean region and say, I'm here to arrest that person, that person, and that person, and take them back in chains to Jerusalem to stand trial. And he was on his way to Damascus, a six-day journey. Imagine walking for six days just to arrest more people when this is what happened in verse 3 of chapter 9. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now imagine how Paul felt right then. Imagine the passion of your life turns out to be you working against God. Imagine thinking that you're going to be the next Billy Graham only to find out that you're the next Osama bin Laden. Paul had been persecuting violently the people who taught that Jesus was the Christ and now he heard from heaven that Jesus speaking straight to him. There's a saying, there's a, a great quote from 
uh, Blaise Pascal, the Christian philosopher who says, who said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. And we as Christians ought to pay close attention to that because some of the things we get passionate and hot under the collar about and, and get after it on, on social media about don't have anything to do with the plans of God. We think we're being righteous when we're really chasing people away from the gospel. Our zeal can be misplaced, and it certainly was in Paul's case. Now, your story may not be that dramatic. In fact, I'd be willing to bet your story's not that dramatic. I know mine's not. I came to Christ, accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was nine years old. And that's only because it was at nine that I believed that I was old enough to understand what it meant to give my life to Jesus. The truth was, I'd known who Jesus was. I believed in him and trusted in him for years. I'd been in church my whole life. At age 16, I I came during a revival service at my church, and I came forward and said, I'm rededicating my life to the Lord. Not because I didn't believe I'd been saved before, but because I, I realized I didn't really know how to follow him as an adult. And those two experiences were were milestones in my life. But I got to tell you, up until that point, I hadn't murdered anybody. I hadn't hadn't committed any blasphemies that I'm aware of. I hadn't fathered any illegitimate children or or, or robbed anyone. I I, I hadn't done any spectacular sins. I'd sinned, yes, but man, if I wrote down my sins up to the age 16, they'd be pretty boring. And quite frankly, since then, they've been pretty dull. And yet, I bet you, many of you could say something similar, and, and yet there was that point where I understood, apart from Jesus, my life's not worth living. There's that, there, there are those parts of me that I can see. I mean, I've been a, a, I've been, it's been over 40 years since I've been baptized, and I can look and say, yes, but there's still enough of that sinful self inside me that I can see where I would have gone apart from his salvation the horrible things that I would have been capable of if not for his new birth. And many of you can tell that story too. See, salvation in the Christian faith is different than it looks in other religions. Standard religion is, okay, here's a list of doctrines. Do you believe them? Okay. Here's a a, a few rituals you need to go through. Here's the rules you need to uh, uh, commit that you're going to try to follow. And once you've done that, then you're a part of our team. And, you know, hopefully you'll be good enough to make it in. Christianity's different. Yes, there are rituals and rules. And yes, there are doctrines and they're all important. But what's most important is a U-turn. It's that moment when you say, that period in your life when you say, I can't go this way anymore. Because this way is leading me away from the life I was born to live, the life Christ died to redeem me to live. And you hit the brakes on that direction. And you start that turn by His grace towards salvation. When did that happen for you? At what point in your life did that occur? That's your story. And it's powerful. Number two, who God used to do it. Who did God use to change your life? Uh, God... Uh, Here's an interesting misconception about Paul. A lot of people will say, well, Paul was saved on the road to Damascus, and that's not actually true. Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul was confronted with his sinfulness on the road to Damascus. He was devastated on that road, but he wasn't saved yet. Saved people don't go without food and water voluntarily for three days. There was no joy in Paul's heart. 
Paul was convinced of his own worthlessness, his own sin, his own lostness, but there was no salvation in his mind because that's why he went without food and drink. He was convinced this blindness that I'm experiencing is just the beginning. The real wrath is yet to come. And I deserve every single bit of it because I destroyed my Lord's people. You know, for the rest of his life, Paul would say, I am the chief of sinners. Not that he felt guilt. He just never forgot the fact that Christ saved me from so deep a hole. The least worthy person, he saved me. Paul wasn't saved until a man named Ananias walked into his house. Ananias, one of the great unsung heroes of Scripture. We rarely talk about him. We don't know much about him. Honestly, Ananias, all we know is he was a citizen of Damascus and a Christian. We don't know if he was one of the ones who had lived in Jerusalem that Paul chased away or he'd been in Damascus all along. But either way, I'd be willing to bet he knew personally and maybe even was related to some of the people Paul had arrested and persecuted. And yet when he walked into that room on Straight Street in Damascus, came into the presence of Paul, he didn't say, hey, Paul, you murderous thug. Paul, you worthless swine. You killer of the people of God who deserves nothing but hellfire. He didn't say any of that. Notice what he said in verse 17. Brother Saul. How hard was it for him to say that? You're my brother, Paul. Whatever you've done. Whatever you've, cap- whatever you've done to others, whatever you've done to people I love, you're my brother. You're part of my family. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight. Paul, up to that point, I guarantee you, pro- believed that Jesus intended to destroy him. And he knew he deserved it. And yet here comes Ananias saying, Jesus doesn't want to destroy you. He wants to redeem you. He has sent me to restore your sight. And that's just the beginning of what he wants you to do in your life. Because next he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what salvation is. Salvation is when the Holy Spirit comes into your heart. There's no Christian life without the Holy Spirit inside you. It it goes on to say that when Ananias laid his hands on Saul, something like scales fell from his eyes. It's a a word in in Greek that's kind of mysterious. It it refers to some filmy substance. It could refer to the scales of a fish. Some people look at that and say, oh, that means that that Paul had developed uh, cataracts because of his encounter on the Damascus Road. We don't know. All I believe is it was not only God's way of healing Saul's blindness, it was his way of saying, you're going to look at the world a completely different way now. Now you're going to see the world through my eyes. Now you are a brand new person. And think about it. That's the first time Saul of Tarsus ever encountered grace. And he would never forget it the rest of his life. Undeserved merit. But Ananias wasn't the only one that God used in Saul's life. Galatians 1.18 says that after three years, Saul went to... Jerusalem to meet the apostles. Luke compresses things because in chapter 9, he tells this story in verse 26, that Saul went to Jerusalem to meet the apostles and they wanted nothing to do with him, nothing at all. They looked at him and said, you're the one who destroyed our church. You're the one that persecuted my friend, my cousin, my brother-in-law, my aunt. How could I ever have anything to do with you? But then there was Barnabas. By the way, Barnabas wasn't his given name. Does anyone here know what his given name was? Anybody want to shout it out? It was Joseph. Joseph, the man of Cyprus. They called him Barnabas because 
That meant son of encouragement. Encouragement is what makes other people better. Barnabas was a man who made everyone around him better. And I tell you, we name lots of kids Paul, we name lots of kids Peter, we name lots of kids James and John and Mary and lots of other biblical names, but there ought to be a few Barneys around here. That is a good name because of the man who bore it. Barnabas put his arm around Saul of Tarsus and led him into the room and said, hey, Peter, here's, here's my friend Saul. James, John, come on over, shake hands with my friend. Barnabas, uh, Bartholomew, Judas, the other Judas, come meet him. And because of him, because of his influence, Saul became part of the church. We all know stories of people who've come to know Jesus, been truly saved, but have nothing to do with church life today because they've run into too many toxic people, too many church bullies, too many self-righteous, Christ-dishonoring so-called believers. What if Barnabas hadn't been there? What would we have missed if Paul would have gone back home to Tarsus and said, well, I'll just wait till Jesus comes back? You know, there's nowhere in in the Bible that I can point to that, that says you have to have someone witness to you in order to be saved. Technically, I'm sure it's possible that you could pick up a gospel tract on the ground or just randomly decide to start reading the Bible. I just don't know anybody that that's happened to. Romans 10, 14 said, how will they believe unless someone tells them? That's almost proof, isn't it? I don't know of anybody who's coming to know Christ without someone being there to help them. I know a guy who got saved in a hotel room reading a Gideon Bible but before that ever happened, he had a coworker who was praying for him and talking to him about the Lord for months. Look at the Bible. How did Peter come to Christ? His brother Andrew brought him to Jesus, said, I think we found the Messiah. How did Andrew come to Christ? He was hanging out with John the Baptist, and John said, hey, look over there. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How did John the Baptist come to know Jesus? His mom, Elizabeth, while she still had him in her womb, came to meet Mary, and John flipped, literally, Everybody who's come to know Jesus that I know of came because someone had an influence on their life. Someone, even after they were saved, grew them in Christ. Who are those people in you that made a difference? Maybe a coach, maybe a, a friend, maybe a coworker, maybe a boss, maybe a teacher, maybe a, a minister. You've had those people that God used to change your life. And now, third, there's that question, what has he been doing since then? For Paul, three things happened when he came to Jesus. Two of them immediately and one after a few years. Number one, the persecutor became persecuted. See, there's this interesting theory, I say interesting, I mean ridiculous, that Paul didn't ever actually experience that thing on the road to Damascus, that he made it all up because like a crafty businessman, he saw which way the winds were blowing and the the Christian movement was, was growing so fast, he thought, well, I need to get in on this. So I'm going to make up a story so those Christians will trust me and make me their leader so I can profit from it. Sort of like that evangelist I told you about back in the 80s who made up the story about being a, a, a witch and, a, and a, a Satanist. The difference is that guy made up his story and he made millions of dollars and he got famous and he was admired for a little while. In Paul's case, the opposite happened. 
He was admired. He was esteemed. He had everything he wanted. You know, it's funny. These days, young people say, when I grow up, I want to be a quarterback in the NFL. I want to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I want to be a Grammy award-winning singer. I want to be a movie star. I want to be a a brain surgeon. I want to be a scholar. In Paul's day, there was nothing higher than achieving what Paul achieved in the nation of Israel, which is to be a Hebrew of Hebrews. By the law, faultless, a man of righteousness, a man of zeal. He had everything a Jewish boy wanted. And you read Philippians 3 and he'll tell you, the day I came to Jesus, all of it went away. Everything I staked my life upon, everything I built, crumbled to the ground when I came to Jesus. You know, Luke goes on and tells us that pretty quickly, his own people turned on him and, and the Christians had to put Paul in a basket and lower him by a rope from the wall of Damascus so he could get away without being killed. And they never stopped chasing him. For the rest of his life, they sought his death and they won in the end. And yet, Paul stuck by his story. The persecutor became persecuted because he knew he couldn't deny Christ had changed his life. The second thing that happened, since Paul's life changed, he started proving that Jesus was the Messiah. It's interesting. He didn't wait. Verse 22 said immediately he started confounding his fellow Jews. And it wasn't because those fellow Jews were ignorant. They were learned men and devout men and women. But Paul was uniquely equipped. Think about it. He was, he was the perfect Uh, instrument for God to use at this moment. He'd been educated under the greatest scholar of his day. He was a man of capacious intellect already. He had this incredible drive, this incredible zeal. I, I think Paul was the original type A guy. And then when you add in the Holy Spirit to that mix, look out. No one could argue with him. No one could defeat him in a debate. And he had the ability to tell us the truth about Scripture, about the gospel about the plan of God, and that's why God used him to write over half the New Testament. God knew what he was doing. And then the third thing that happened in Paul's life, he began to spread the gospel among the Gentiles. This doesn't happen for a few years. We'll start next week looking at how it began. But I got to tell you, from a personal standpoint, I'm really happy that Paul did this. A few years ago, uh, my, my family bought me for Father's Day the opportunity to do that DNA thing Uh, where you send off some of your saliva, I know, gross, but then they send back and they tell you, okay, this is where your ethnic roots are, which was surprising. I thought with my name Berger, I thought I was mainly German, but it turns out I'm mainly English. But you know one other thing I discovered? Not one drop of Jewish blood in me. So if, if Paul didn't do what he did, I'm lost. And so are many of you. He changed the world. Now, let's all agree on an understatement. None of us should expect to change the world to the level that Paul did. I I sure don't expect it to happen in my life. If it happens in you, then I'll be there to cheer you on and say, that's, yeah, I'm his pastor. Yeah, she was in my church. But that's not really the standard. The, the, The point is, your life is an important part of the plan of God. God is writing a story in your life, which when it is told to others, when others see it, they will be drawn to him if you will let him write that story. And your story doesn't stop the day you get saved. That's when the good part starts. I know me personally, the best parts of my story have been since my salvation, not at my salvation. So what has God been doing in your life since then? 
Maybe your story is the story of how God got you through a a terrible tragedy, the death of a loved one, or a, a crippling injury, or a devastating illness, or the end of a relationship, or or the breaking up of your family. Maybe your story is about how God showed you that you have a purpose in your life much greater than going to work and cashing a paycheck and raising a family. You were built to change the world in some some spectacular way. You've got a gift for teaching scripture, or or you're very, very good at working with teenagers, or maybe young children are just drawn to you, and you're able to lead them to Christ, or maybe you have a heart for the elderly, or for stopping human trafficking, or for fighting against legalized abortion, or for standing up for justice for others. Or maybe your story is about how at some point in your life you veered off from God's path and made some terrible mistake and you thought all was lost and God came along and said, oh no, oh no, I can even work that into my plan and how he redeemed even your worst mistake. But you've got a story to tell. And so let me give you my challenge and then my encouragement and then we're done. My challenge is twofold. Number one, I want you to tell your story. I want you to write down your story. I mean literally, with pen and ink, or with keyboard, however you best operate. And as your pastor, you have my permission to do this for your devotional time tomorrow. And if you don't have a daily devotional time, don't tell me. I don't want to know. But schedule some time. In the morning, in the evening, whenever you're most productive, sit down and use this framework that we, that we use today. Here's how God changed my life. Here's who he used to do it. Here's what he's been doing in my life since then. It doesn't have to be long. In fact, it's better if it's short, two or three paragraphs. Second part of the challenge, take that second part, who he used to do it, and send it to us here at the church. You can send us the whole story. I'd love to read it. But we're really interested in learning who did God use to transform you? Somewhere along the way, you had someone who was such an influence on you that you don't know how you could be who you are today without that person. We're building a church that equips people for transforming relationships. And so we want some stories to tell. So send it an email or, or record yourself talking about it on your phone. Send it to us. We'd love to read those stories, hear those stories, share them. Now, you're, now here's your encouragement. Your story is not over yet. I know that. There's a lot I don't know. This I know. You know how I know it? Because as I look around the room, it looks to me like all of you are still breathing. And while you're still breathing, God's not done with you. You may think he's done. You may wish he was done, but he's not. And you may say to me, okay, I don't really, I can't really pinpoint a time where Jesus changed my life. Well, that's probably because it hasn't happened yet. I guarantee you there are people in any church in the world, including this one, who've never really had a saving experience with Jesus Christ. And I'm not here today to make anyone doubt their salvation, but if you can't look at a point in your life where there was a U-turn, then it still needs to happen. Because it's not about accumulating spiritual points through coming to church and trying your best. It's about the salvation only He can bring. And I'm going to be standing outside the library as soon as this is over And I'd love to talk to you and tell you the next steps you need to take. And there are a lot of you that would probably say, yeah, I I know, I know when Jesus changed my life, but I just don't know of anything he's been doing since then. I I don't have any story to tell since then. Well, your story's not over yet. You may look back and say, "I, I feel like I've wasted decades, but don't dwell on that. God's still writing that story. 
And the best parts of your story are still yet to come. Come to him and just say, Lord, I'm coming back to you. I want that abundance you promised, and I want to get it by chasing after you. Not myself, not my own happiness. And you might say to me, I've got a great story, lots of good things to tell, but you know, the truth is, lately I've sort of been on cruise control. Again, God's not done with you yet. Your story is still being written. Come to him and say, Lord, I I, I feel like I'm not capable of doing the things I used to do, but I know you still have a plan for me, so show me what it is. God is writing a story in your life, which when it is told, will lead people to salvation, will change their lives forever. You don't have to be a showy person. You don't have to be an extrovert. You don't have to be a look-at-me kind of person. In fact, it's better if you're not. But he's writing a story in your life that's powerful. The only question is, will you let him? 